Welcome back to the Leverage Podcast. I'm Ari Mizell, and I'm interviewing Cy Wakeman today, who's the author of No Ego, a new book about a new way of being a leader. Cy, thank you for being on the show today. So uh, let's give a little background first for the listeners. Uh, and your first book was Reality-Based Leadership. So what was that all about? Reality-Based Leadership is a way of leading, we think it's a more modern way of leading, that isn't about leaders trying to slay dragons and change reality so that their employees feel good and are engaged. And it's really about helping employees live skillfully in the reality we have, rather than spending a lot of energy wishing for reality to be different. And it really calls people to greatness and a lot of questioning of conventional wisdom of what we've taught leaders and aligning leadership more with brain science and, you know, what we would consider healthy mental um, health processes. I started out as a therapist. In the new book, one of the things you talk about, which I found just kind of amazing, is that the average worker spends two and a half hours a day on drama. Yeah, we were shocked. I am a drama researcher. It's kind of a field I stumbled into, but uh, I spent my days um, looking at how much time the average person spends in drama, unproductive um, thinking, disruptive behavior, anything that siphons away results or happiness. And we found it to be in a very large scale study, on average, two and a half hours a day that people could regain in their lives and put it towards success and happiness. It's a huge life hack. Well, and how are you defining drama? How are you measuring drama? So in this particular study that the um, book is based on, we surveyed leaders and asked them about unproductive time that they spend. And we asked HR and we asked employees about what is time that goes into helping and hindering. And it really came, um, the definition is, you know, dealing with disruptive behaviors, involved in disruptive behaviors, or um, using unproductive thought processes. And we went on after we quantified it, because that's 816 hours a year. And if you think about your hourly pay, right, or your salary to folks, it's just an enormous amount of waste in the workplace. So we went on then to ask, what do these behaviors look like? What is involved in these thought processes? And we found out that there's actually five main sources of drama, ego being the largest source. And that's why we called the book No Ego. If we could move beyond ego, we could significantly cut the cost of workplace drama and people would be much happier. Do you see this across different industries? And do you see a variance between a remote team versus a, a team that's in person working together? You know, we have not studied remote, non-remote um, specifically, but gender, industry, and age group. And that's important to know because when I studied this in the 90s, it was only two hours a day in drama. And it's two and a half today. And many people jump to the conclusion, well, that's the millennials. But it's not. It's a human condition, not an age situation. Um, and so it really is across industry. It's across, you know, gender. It's, it's really about our human condition that we've quit really working on. And our first response isn't to say, how could we be more skillful in this reality? Our first response, almost as a society, has come to say, reality's wrong and what needs to be changed in order for me to be 
you know, giving the gift of my work to make it easier for me rather than how can I live more skillfully and approach things from a higher level of consciousness so that work becomes effortless. And uh, it's, it's a really non-conventional way of seeing the world, but one that's been around for thousands of years. I'm just resurrecting it. What do you see as driving those ego issues? I, I know you said not uh, the millennials, but like all the, the selfies and Instagram and a lot of that stuff has to be at some level uh, narcissism, I imagine. You know, it, it does. And um, it depends on if it's coming, if you're taking a selfie with motive, like I hope people will look how cool I am online. I uh, myself try and take a, a lot of selfies and pictures of my family. And I would say that it's not the act of taking a selfie. It's the act of expectations with the selfie. So we like to take pictures to you know celebrate our fun time this weekend together or the fact that we had a great fun accomplishment. I have, you know, the book got shipped to our offices. Um, and so I want people to get away from if the act is selfish or if it's done with expectation and motive and that makes it more narcissistic or egoic. Okay, I see. So how do you start to bring awareness to the issue? You know, the first level of awareness is just helping people understand how often your ego comes out to play at work at home. Most of us haven't sat and really noticed that um, our ego is narrating our world constantly. And ego is not all negative. It's part of what builds our confidence and, and healthily separates us out from others. But most people, if I ask them just to sit with their eyes closed and listen to their thinking, they're shocked when they listen to it from an observer standpoint, because you're thinking all sorts of things that um, if you really listen, don't sound all that helpful or even true. So for instance, if I just had a boss call me and ask me on the status of a project, there's no pain in that. I let him know I'm behind. He asked me how I might, um, you know, get back on track. What are my plans? We talk a little bit. He gives me some good ideas. There's just no pain in this. But when I sit and listen to what is going through my mind after that call, it sounds like this. My boss is a micromanager. He treats me like a child. He is trying to, um, you know, hurt my career. He's probably looking for reasons to fire me. Um, I have a kid in med school. He wants to help children in Uganda. Now kids in Uganda are going to die. That's all the thoughts just floating around in my head. But my reality is my boss called to check on a project. So most people are shocked to find out that there's this narrator going on. That's not them. They're the witness of it. And here's the problem is most people believe everything they think without question. And that's our ego narrating the world. And it distorts reality. It's like wearing a bad pair of prescription glasses. So you're always operating out of really bad information, really corrupted data. And so that's the first step is helping people be aware of how often they're not reality based but they're believing stories and judging and motive and, you know, the world's kind of a, a horrible place if you believe your own thinking. Yeah, of course. And I guess that obviously in terms of leadership, this is really important. But I mean, people can be a leader at any level of their work in any sort of position, right? So do you see any sort of like evolution there or does it get worse as you go higher up? You know, I think it's not worse as it gets higher up. It gets worse over time if we aren't 
um, working to overcome this human condition. So, um, you know, people need to understand um, simplistically how the brain works. And there's this part of your um, frontal cortex that is kind of always scanning the environment. It's looking for insult even when there isn't any. It's this narrator. And that narrator loves to vent. So when something happens, it's not natural to self-reflect or to look at what's my part in this or what do I know for sure and then to really see how I could make um, have impact. And if you want to get conscious, if you want to wake up, if you want to get intentional, first you realize what the ego is saying. And then the second step is you start to question it and, and stop believing what you think. But one thing to know about your ego is that it uses venting to avoid self-reflection. A person can't vent and self-reflect at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. Venting comes out of the frontal cortex. Self-reflecting comes much farther into the brain out of the, the most powerful part of the brain, which is the part that does collaboration and teamwork and all those things naturally. So as an employee or a leader, an informal or formal leader, I need to be constantly moving out of my most limited part of my brain into my most complex part of my brain, because that's where all my resources are. And how you do that is through personal curiosity and self-reflection. So when I have somebody venting in front of me as a leader, um, with all the love of my heart, I might say, you know, take a deep breath and let me ask you a question. What would great look like? If you were great right now, what would great look like? Well, I took that person from venting, bypassed the ego rather than igniting it with feedback, bypassed it, and now I'm at the best part of their brain, they have to stop venting to think. And here's the key. Everyone knows what great looks like. It's what we judge other people on. And they might go, great would be, instead of complaining to you about Ted, I would go directly to him, seek to understand why he's having difficulty coming up with the information I need, um, you know, crowdsource to see if there's other great ideas and how to do that. Like everyone knows what great looks like, but I, as a colleague or a leader, just took the energy from why the world stinks and why we can and why Ted's out to get us to what could I do to get the information I need. That's accountability. And accountability is really the death to the ego. So it avoids self-reflection because self-reflection is the foundation of accountability and accountability is death to the ego. So to answer your question, how can we move beyond this, is we get really well-versed in feeling when we're stressed, knowing that reality is not stressful, so that's a sign we're an ego, and bypassing ego with self-reflection so that we open up hundreds of options by which then we can take great action. I see. And I mean, from a practical standpoint, because I, I definitely fall into these traps, does this end up with someone just sort of sitting there pausing quietly for like a full minute while they figure this out before they speak again? You know, it does. Um, in the beginning, people um, pause, but then they're, they'll go back to venting. It's like they, they almost get self-reflective and then the ego gets scared to death and takes them back into venting. And the ego really argues with this, like, well, it can't be all about me. And someday they have to be held accountable. And there are just times, I that, you know, I'm being harmed by somebody else. And, and so 
we just encourage them to self-reflect. Is that true? What would great look like? If you were great there now, what would that look like? Um, what could you do to help? What was your part in this? What do you know for sure? These questions that I teach in the book are all about self-reflection. We have assignments for self-reflection. It completely changes the way you interact and the way you take action. Um, and it's so simple. It's almost embarrassingly simple. Yeah, that sounds really simple. But I mean, sometimes things are simple, but not easy, right? I think that's the perfect description. And another thing you talk about in the book, which I really like as well, was that you were saying leaders should not be sympathetic. They should be empathetic. I think where our egos come together is when we sympathize with others, we collude with them. We agree that the problem is outside of us and that we're at the mercy of, of circumstances circumstances. And empathy is really just seeing your suffering, but then calling you to greatness so that you can get more skilled and then be more successful in our current circumstances. So sympathy colludes with you and blames the circumstances. Empathy really calls you up to greatness so that you can grow beyond the circumstances. And most leaders and colleagues join up together in sympathy. And where we want leaders to bring people is to empathize with them, but be responsive and help grow the person. That sounds like a very subtle but obviously important shift. So if somebody comes to you and says, this colleague of mine, I thought they were very abrupt with me and rude and I don't feel very supported. So sympathy would be where, oh my gosh, I know they were abrupt with me too. And people around here just need to, you know, um, realize that we had a lot of value and I'm sorry you had to go through that. And, um, you know, if I were you, I would report them or I would go confront them or it's all like collusion. And I agree with you that we're the victims. And then what I recommend to you is just very violent and abrupt and definitely will inflate the ego and engage it and ignite it. It's like the worst advice ever. Empathy would be, I hear that you're frustrated right now with a colleague and um, the story that you're believing right now is that they were very abrupt with you. And um, let's look at the facts. What happened? Well, they walked by me and they didn't say hello and they're rude. And um, you know why they didn't say hello is they think that they're better than I am. And I might just listen for a minute, but with empathy say, it sounds like this is really bothersome to you. And I'm just wondering, will you work with me and really just see what the true facts are of the story? Let's take out any judgment, assignment of meaning, anything. Let's do what we call edit the story. And I tell you how to do this in the book. It takes two minutes where I can say, all I heard that we know for sure is that somebody walked by you and didn't say hello. You've jumped to their rude, abrupt, and all of that. What if they just walked by you? Are there other explanations? Well, maybe they didn't see me. Maybe they're deep in prayer and meditation for peace in the world. I like how you're thinking now. So what do you know for sure? They walked by me. So you can't know that they're abrupt. What could you do to build a better relationship with them so that you can feel more confident that they're on your side? Three things. Awesome. Go do that. It's a way of unraveling what the mind's so sure about, what the ego knows for sure, and getting people back into a state of wonder and personal curiosity so that they can see a lot more options besides somebody was abrupt and did that on purpose. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. So this is like one very small win for me is anytime I've, I've trained myself to do this now, but basically anytime 
uh, and, I, and I live in New York, but anytime somebody is aggressive in their car or cuts me off or honks their horn, I always tell myself that they are driving someone to the hospital. I love that. That's such a, a simple way of doing that. Now, people will argue, but that's obviously not true. But I would argue that what you were thinking before was not true. The fact that they get up this morning with a plan to kill you is also not true. And the outcome, you know, that's based on a concept called co-creation, by the way. We're always co-creating. Even the observer of a scientific experiment has an effect on the experiment. That's called the observer effect. So you're always co-creating. Somebody walks by me and doesn't say hello. I make up a story that they're rude. Since they got that promotion, they think they're all that in a bag of chips. I treat them rudely. They respond rudely. I go, see, I'm right about stuff I make up. I reinforce the ego. If I can borrow from my Buddhist friends, I would not make anything up. I would just go walk by noted, no hello seen, conserve energy, move on to add value. But most of us aren't good at saying neutral. So a trick to play till you get good at this is to make up a better story knowing we're co-creating. So I make up a story that you're deep in prayer and meditation for peace in the world. How do I treat you? With great respect, you know, how are you in this world and not of this world? Can I sit by you for lunch? You treat me well. And now my view of the world is reinforced that people are really nice. But the only thing that changed was my thinking and my behavior. And that changed everything. And that's the power people don't realize they have. So when people say, Sai, I need to be empowered, I tell them about co-creation. I'm like, step into the power you already have. It will change your whole life. You just expand on that a little bit. So a lot of people will come to me and they really look at their external circumstances. They go, if only I had a different boss or if only I was given more direction or if I was given more power, I would be fine. And a universal lesson that I teach is that your circumstances aren't the reasons you can't succeed. They're the reality in which you must succeed. So leaders need to quit trying to perfect people's circumstances and people need to quit wishing for different circumstances. And we all need to get skilled in succeeding in our current circumstances. And one way to get skilled is to realize that most of the power you already have, you don't use. Simple example. I hear people say, my leaders don't listen to me. I don't have a say around here. And then I'll go to a meeting with them and they don't speak up. They don't say anything. They show up at the meeting and stay silent. And yet they want me to get them a new leader. They want, you know, to be empowered to pick their own leader. And I go, well, why don't you start with just using the power you already have, like showing up at a meeting and actually speaking up in a professional way with ideas that could actually help us move forward rather than complaints about what we've done in the past. And so that's a simple way to use the power you already have rather than stepping down and then blaming your circumstances and then wishing for different circumstances. So the whole book really challenges conventional wisdom around the, the role of a leader that a lot of people think my leader is the one who's supposed to keep me motivated and engaged. And I'm like, that's all about changing your circumstances. That's impossible for a leader. A leader's role is to help you use better mental processes so that you can see that a lot of the world's already pretty perfect and that you can succeed in the world we have rather than you holding the leader accountable to get you a different world. And most of our HR philosophy of engagement and motivation and all of this is really aimed at trying to create a different world for our employees. And I know that the world's pretty perfect 
and could use some improvement. So I would rather, as a leader, help my employees do um, live um, um, better in the world they have. Does that make sense to you, Ari? Yeah, that makes total sense, and I love it. Uh, so I know you didn't particularly research data on a remote versus not, but I can see, so, you know, we have a remote business with uh, about 180 people in 17 time zones. So I can see how a lot of these principles can apply and I feel like we don't have much drama, but do you have any thoughts on that in terms for remote teams? Because a lot of it is just they're communicating over Slack or email instead of in-person meetings. But I might write a Slack message to somebody and they don't write back and I think they're ignoring me. Exactly. And I think, you know, um, we work um, in remote situations often as well with our clients and with um, some of our team members. One of the things that I um, have as kind of a non-negotiable is what I call stop judging, start helping. Because we're co-creating, it is a professional always gives somebody the benefit of the doubt. So if we're communicating on Slack, if I look at at least older communication theory, 7% of my message is about what I say, 38% is tone of voice, and you know the rest of it is body language, right? 65% or I'm not sure I got my numbers right. If I'm on Slack, I'm down to 7%. I have 93% that I get to fill in the blank with because I don't have their tone of voice usually unless they use all caps and I don't have their body language. So I am filling in the blank of my reality 93% of the time. And it's my choice. If I want a great life, I fill the blank in with benefit of the doubt. And if you can do that, you save yourself so much jumping to conclusions and venting and burning calories because you almost have to have people tell you directly, I'm mad at you or I am insulting you in order to be insulted. And it makes such a difference. And so what that says is we need to give each other benefit of the doubt. Those folks that we're working with most virtually, we need to take some time out and get to know them better so that we can fill in the blank in their favor. I had a, a new support person, and I have someone who's been with me for, gosh, almost 10 years. And I'll never forget Sarah, who's my chief of staff, has been with me a long time. The new employee came to her and was kind of upset. She had gotten what she felt was a pretty gruff text that just said, have files at five o'clock when I land in Atlanta. And it didn't say please or thank you. It didn't say anything. Now, she felt like I was just an abrupt, gruff boss. That's the story she had made up. Sarah looked at it, looked at the time, you know, 3.02, said, oh, no, that store's closing. So I probably was about to get her phone taken away from the flight attendant. By knowing each other, we can give each other the benefit of the doubt. But even if you don't know people, give people the benefit of the doubt for your own peace and sanity. I think that's very sage advice. And uh, so one last question that we always like to ask on these interviews is what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? Oh my gosh. The um, advice I give everyone is stop judging, start helping. In fact, the um, phrase, how can I help is on the back of our badges. And whether I'm about to tattle on somebody or complain about somebody, I stop judging. I go directly to them and I read them the question, uh, how can I help? So that's one. Two is um, be constantly 
questioning your thinking. Stop believing everything you think. Just because you thought it doesn't mean it's true. Your ego narration is not you and it's not your view of the world unless you believe it. And the minute you believe it, you agree with it and create it and buy into it. And then that's your destiny. So be very skeptical, not of the world, but of your own thinking um, is two. And uh, I think that um, the third one would have to be um, really come to understand that most of what you vent about never even happened. So it's your story that your ego created. So next time you're venting, um, you might find yourself laughing if you actually listen to yourself because what you're so upset about probably didn't even happen. And I'll let listeners meditate on that one a while. That's awesome. And this has been great. Thank you so much, Sai. So where can people find out more about you and the book, of course? Well, the book's called No Ego, How Leaders Can Cut the Cost of Drama, End Entitlement, and Drive Big Results. That is available right now um, before September 17th, 2017, if you're listening. It's available for pre-order on any online bookseller or at your favorite independent bookstore. And after September 17th, it's available everywhere. And they can find us at realitybasedleadership.com. And we pride ourselves on giving a ton of, to you on social media. Our podcast is No Ego. And if you're on Instagram and uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, it's at Cy Wakeman, C-Y-W-A-K-E-M-A-N. And we also have a great YouTube channel, backslash Cy Wakeman. So we'll keep you well-fed so that you can keep progressing towards a very successful and happy life. We have some great, great uh, ways to um, do less and achieve more. Want to create more positive leverage in your life? Visit www.getleverage.com to access additional interviews, our blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe to hear a new episode every week. 